Genesis 33 this morning. Genesis 33, you know, we were made for relationships, and there's really no two two ways about it. We were made to be in fellowship, to be in communion with other people, to have relationships. And though at times we shy from that, uh, maybe we try to fool ourselves into thinking, no, I can handle life on my own, we always tend to kind of head back that way. And if we don't head back the direction of relationship, we end up bitter and lonely and, and cold because we were created to be in fellowship. With each other, with other humans, other creations of the Lord, we were made to be connected to other people. But we were also made to be in fellowship with the Lord. The challenge is when fellowship with a friend, a brother, a sister, a parent, family member, when fellowship breaks, when it gets broken. You can't be human and not have had that happen or have it happen right now, have it going on, or that it will happen in the future. If you've never been in a situation where you have lost a relationship or had a relationship go through contentious times, the bad news is that you probably will because we're human. We've all faced it at one time or another or we will face it. The problem of being in broken relationship with someone that you love, that you want to be in relationship with. And and I want to tell you this morning, I think I've shared before that when I was in Bible college, one of the things that I was taught very, very firmly by the professors there, as if it was rule of law, is that you don't talk about when you're preaching your own stuff. You don't share the personal stuff. You leave that outside. You don't use the pulpit as a place to air your laundry. And so that kind of got embedded in me. And I don't know that I fully agree with that, but over the years, anytime something comes up study-wise, that is of a personal nature for me, it's difficult. Now, we are studying through God's Word. And we land in Genesis chapter 33. And actually, the last two, three, four chapters have been a little difficult for me. As I'm sure for many of you, when you look at relationship that has been severed, Now, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. He's been off doing his thing. He's been in Paddan Aram. And in Paddan Aram, he's learned a few things from his uncle Laban, a very deceitful man. Laban has been like a mirror in the face of Jacob. Jacob has been able to look at Laban's life and see himself and go, Is that the way I am? Am I a deceiver? Am I truly living up to my name? His name meaning what? Heel catcher. Jacob's name meaning heel catcher or supplanter. Is that truly me? And all the time living with Laban, he saw that 20 years. He finally gets away from it. And as we saw last week, he's, he's headed out from Laban. He's left Laban behind. And he wrestles through the night with God in prayer. It's an awesome, awesome study, an awesome chapter in the Bible, chapter 32. But now it's morning. Jacob is awake. The, the prayer is behind him. The experience, he's limping. Because as you may recall, God touched the socket of his hip and caused lameness. And for the rest of Jacob's life, his walk would not be the same. It literally took a hip-wrenching experience to open Jacob's eyes to the one who he had truly been wrestling with, the one he had truly been in broken fellowship with, and that's the Lord. For you see, you can't be in fellowship with the Lord and in broken relationship with someone else. 
Now you may be saying, well, wait a minute, Rick, I've got a broken relationship and it wasn't my fault and I've tried to repair it and it, I, I can't help it. Does that mean I'm out of fellowship with God? No, it doesn't. But it does mean, as you'll see tonight or this morning, it does mean that we have a responsibility as children of God to be about reparation, reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness. This is a hard chapter. And as I, as I said, personal for me, because as with many of you, I have in my life some relationships that I want to see restored, that I'm praying for restoration about. But as we go through this, I read this and I think, Lord, I have much to learn. I am hopeful that Genesis 33 will make a difference for you. This is an incredibly practical chapter as we look at this idea of reconciliation. But I want to start in 32, verse 31. A couple of verses right before we get into the chapter where it tells us, and this is right after Jacob's experience of wrestling with God all night long. And in verse 31, it's a beautiful poetic verse. It tells us, now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and was limping on his thigh. Penuel, you may remember if you were here Wednesday night, Penuel means the face of God. And so just as Jacob is crossing over across the face of God, the sun rises on him. It's a new day in Jacob's life. He is no longer relying on himself. Now he's limping, relying on, leaning on the father. But whatever happened with his older brother Esau? Did there end up being a war between the brothers? Because you may recall that Esau is on the way. He's got a small army of 400 men. And he is coming out to meet Jacob. And Jacob knows this. It's why he spent the last two nights in prayer. Worried, fearful, distressed. What's going to happen when I see my brother? He divides his family into two camps. So that if one is attacked, the other one can get away safely. Jacob has prepared for the worst. And now he faces his brother Esau. And Jacob, in chapter 22 we saw, also tried to buy some peace from his brother. He sent out droves of animals ahead of himself. 550 animals, to be precise. And he sent them in companies ahead so that one would reach Esau. And Esau would say, hey, wow, i got some sheep here. Cool. And then they'd go further and another one would come up. Hey, i got some goats. All right. And then another one, donkeys. And gift after gift after gift comes to Esau as he's headed to meet Jacob. And we at this point do not know the heart of Esau. We don't know if he's coming with an army to fight, to kill his brother to pay him back for stealing from him. All we know is what Jacob knows, and there are droves of goats, rams, cows, bulls, donkeys, all going toward Esau. And the question is, does it work? Does buying someone off in a relationship work? We'll find that out in just a minute, but let's pray. Fathers, we get into verse or chapter 33. I pray that you will work in us an understanding today. I pray that you will help us to clearly see where we stand in the role of reconciliation. And that, Father, even if this is hard, even if it's a challenge for us, even if we walk out of here feeling like we're not up to the task, I pray that Christ's love will compel us. And I pray that what we share and talk about this morning will change us and alter our perspective and how we deal with other people, especially those whom we have in some way offended. Bless this time, bless the study, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 33. 
Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and then Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last, but he himself passed on ahead of them, and he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And in this moment, it's, it's overwhelming after all this time to read that verse. Here comes Esau with a band of, of, of brothers, an army. But when he sees Jacob, he breaks. He runs out ahead of his men. This is, this is not a manly thing to do, but he goes running and throws his arms around his brother. And they are weeping. They're holding each other. They're hugging. It's like the end of a Hallmark movie. <laughs> And it's the kind of commercial that just messes me up. Some of you know this. When I watch commercials for Hallmark cards, i got to change the channel. It's too much for me. My little heart can't take it. I always tear up and I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's a card. It's just a card. But that's what's going on here. Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, the contentious, offended brothers, not fighting, but hugging, loving, weeping, restored. And I read that verse and I think, wow. Now don't miss this. The magnitude of what's going on here. 20 years of separation. Some of you have in family, usually family, family situations have people you haven't spoken with for 10, 15, 20 years. People that you've tried but you've just written off and they've written you off and there's, there's no connection there. There is a division there. And most of the time you're okay with that, but the moments that you think about that person, it rushes in and you just you get that sick feeling in your stomach. Well, here's good news, folks. Jacob and Esau had not spoken for 20 years. But restoration was still possible. It still happened. I take great comfort from that, as we all should. But I want you to see this morning four critical elements of reconciliation that we see in, in these two brothers as they come back together. Beginning with verse 5, let's read on. Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And so Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you. Folks, the first thing to jot down if you're taking notes is that reconciliation is the result of grace. Reconciliation is the result of grace. Without grace, there can be no reconciliation. Reconciliation is not the result of making it right. Of going back into the past and fixing everything that was done wrong so that at one point you can come to the future again and everything's okay. That is not reconciliation. Reconciliation 
is the result of grace. Now, grace is simply defined as unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Grace is something that's given freely. It is unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And you'll notice in this passage we just read how many times the word favor is used. It's the word grace. Jacob says, I gave you all these things so that I might find favor in the sight of my Lord. And then he says, now if I have found favor in your sight, then take my presence. And he says, I see your face as one sees the face of God. You've received me favorably. Grace. That great 21st century preacher Bono put it this way. He said, grace finds beauty in ugly things. Which is what happened with us and the Father, is he found beauty in ugly things. I'm not talking about physical appearance, but I'm talking about the state of the heart. That all of us have ugliness. All of us have a past. From the youngest to the oldest. Now, maybe the youngest don't quite have <laughs> the same kind of past. I recall the story, and it's one of my favorites, about a little nine-year-old girl who received Christ in a service on a Sunday morning. And this was in, this was in a black church. And she came up to the front, and they always, in this particular church, when someone received Christ, would come up to the front and, and share why or how, what had happened. And she stood up there, nine years old, and said, for years, I wandered deep in sin. <laughs> Maybe the sins are lesser for a nine-year-old than for a 29-year-old, but they're still sin nonetheless. Grace is unmerited favor. But folks... Grace finds beauty in ugly things. And the Lord sees few things as ugly as contention. If you really want to know what hurts the heart of God, it's simply strife. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, a passage we all should be familiar with. You should know. If you don't, memorize this and understand it. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Now, we talk a lot about how God is love, but God does hate. He does hate something, certain things. The Bible tells us there are six things that he hates, seven that are detestable, and that basically means it's Hebrew poetry. It means the seventh one he hates far more than the other six. Oh, there are six that he does not like at all that he hates, but the seventh in this list is by far the worst. Listen to the list. Haughty eyes. He hates them. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. He hates those things. But you want to know what he despises? He detests one who spreads strife among brothers. If there's any one thing God hates, it's someone who spreads strife. Who goes about the business, makes it their business to tear relationships apart as opposed to bringing them together. Now we've watched Jacob and Esau speculating about their feelings for each other, but God's feelings in the matter are clear. He hates contention and strife. And for the 20 years of separation between these brothers, though God has been with Jacob, God has done something here very interesting to me. He sent Jacob back to Esau. We think, oh no, God was just calling Jacob back to the promised land. Yes, he was. But Esau was in the promised land and God knew it. And God was sending brother back to brother to deal with the issues of life that had been divided. 
But the good news is both Jacob and Esau act graciously. Esau acts with amazing grace. Remember, he's the wrong party. He's the one who's been hurt here. He's the one who had his birthright ripped out from under him, had the blessing stolen. He's the one who has every right to be angry and bitter toward Jacob. But, wow, in a moment of almost spirituality, Esau, the man of the earth, shows incredible grace. Notice the turn of the phrase here. Verse 9, Esau says, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. In verse 12, Esau later says, hey, let's take our journey and go together and I'll go before you. I'll kind of lead the way into the land for you. And then down in verse 15, Esau, when Jacob says, no, we'll come later, Esau says, oh, please let me live with you, some of the people who are here with me. You see, Esau wants now to take care of his brother again. He's loving his brother again. This is incredible grace. You get the feeling that he's just so overjoyed to see his brother, he could care less about anything else. Forget the flocks and the herds and, and all the stuff. He's, forget the gifts. I don't need those. I just want my brother back. I just want to be in relationship with you. You know, I wonder about something. I wonder if it's grace or if possibly there's some fear maybe here in Esau as well that has just been relieved. For the past 20 years, Esau knew that Jacob had the blessing and the birthright. And he must have wondered, is Jacob ever going to come back and try to reclaim it? So Esau himself may have, for the past 20 years, lived with some sense of fear, some worry. And all this time... Jacob is worried about Esau's threats, but maybe Esau is showing up with 400 men simply because he's trying to protect himself just in case Jacob's going to come storming into the land. Well, however you cut it, Esau shows some amazing grace, but Jacob also acts with amazing grace. Look at verse 10 again, and I want you to notice there's an interesting turn of a phrase. Jacob said... No, please, now, if I found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. And then he says, please, take my gift, which has been brought to you. Take my present, he says. Take my gift. Now, the word present there in the Hebrew indicates an offering, a tribute, a way of, of honoring somebody. But the second word there, gift, is the word, listen to this, barakah, that comes from the root word barak. The root word barak means, in the Hebrew, blessing. Now think about this. What Jacob is saying is not just take my gift. Jacob, what had he stolen from Esau? The blessing. And now Jacob is saying, Esau, take my blessing. I want to share with you the blessing. I know I have the blessing, but we're brothers and I'm back and we're restored. Let's share it. Share the blessing with me. I know what I did. I, I want you to know though where my heart is. Let me share the blessing with you. Guys, it's hard to be angry with someone who wants to bless you. So understand that reconciliation is always the result of grace. Not of fixing things, not of making them right. If you look back at relationships that have been hurt in the past, let me tell you right now, chances are you cannot fix them. You can't go back with your hammer and your nails and your screwdriver and try to put it back together. But you can offer grace. You can't fix it. 
but you can forgive it. Reconciliation is the result of grace. Now, between Jacob and Esau, whose was the greater responsibility to reconcile? Who would you think really needed to be the reconciler in the relationship? I would say Jacob, absolutely. But not for the obvious reason. The obvious reason is that Jacob hurt Esau, he stole from Esau, he wronged Esau, but that's not why Jacob needs to be the reconciler. Look at verse 33 again, or verse 11, chapter 33. Please, Jacob says, take my gift which has been brought to you because, 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 God has dealt graciously with me. Jacob is giving grace because he has been given grace. The second thing to notice is that reconciliation is the responsibility of the reconciled. Reconciliation is the responsibility of the reconciled. As I said before, God sends Jacob back to Canaan to reconcile with Esau. But on the way back, Jacob has this amazing experience and recognizes, realizes that all he has has come from God. That he himself has been reconciled to the Father. Genesis 32 verse 10. Jacob said, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two companies. And I believe what Jacob is saying there is, I've become a company with all my flocks and herds and family, but I also have a second company, the company of the family of God. Jacob is reconciled to the father. And as the reunited brothers debate over whether or not Esau should take Jacob's gifts, no, take my gifts. No, I don't need to take your gifts. No, please take my gifts. No, really, I don't want to take your gifts. And they're almost boiling into a fight again about it. In this moment, listen to their choice of words. Verse 9, Esau says, I have plenty, my brother. I have plenty. But in verse 11, Jacob says, hey, God has dealt graciously with me because I have plenty. problem is, plenty is not the same word used there. When Esau says plenty, he means plenty. I've got plenty of stuff. I've got, all, you know, I've got plenty here, Jacob. But when Jacob says plenty, the word he uses means all or everything. Esau says, I've got plenty. I don't need your stuff. And Jacob says, no, no, no. I've got it all. I have everything. He's got something more than wives and children and men and maidservants and flocks and herds. And Jacob is the blessed heir of Isaac, but he has something more than that. Something Esau does not have. Jacob knows that he is chosen by God. Jacob knows that he is in relationship, fellowship with his heavenly father. And because of that, because he has been reconciled to the father, now he becomes the reconciler. That's how it works. Reconciliation is always the responsibility of the reconciled. Flip in your Bibles over to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. Jacob, reconciled to God, inherited the responsibility now of reconciliation. And Paul has another word for it. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul calls it. The ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls or compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? I don't recognize people according to the flesh. According to the fleshly works. According to the things of the flesh. Strife and mayhem and disorder and contention. Those are things of the flesh. I don't recognize that anymore. I don't look at people in the world who hurt me as people who can hurt me anymore. I will no longer recognize things according to the flesh. But... Paul goes on, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, that he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do you understand the weight of that? The moment you step into a relationship with Christ, you have given up the right to bitterness. The moment that you walk into that kind of fellowship with the Father, you no longer have that, that capability even. You are a new creature who does not count things according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as a child of God, reconciliation, listen to this, reconciliation is always your responsibility to give, regardless of whether or not you are the offender. Even if you are the offended, your responsibility is reconciliation. Even if someone has hurt you, you did nothing wrong. It's the responsibility of the reconciled to reconcile. Matthew 5.23 Jesus said, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother, but that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. As one who has been reconciled, reconciliation is my responsibility. And you know what, folks? Jesus made it very clear. In fact, he put even a sharper point on this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 25, he tells a parable. A parable about a king who wants to settle up accounts with his servants. And he calls a servant in and says, Buddy, you're in deep weeds. You owe me hundreds of thousands of dollars, literally more than a person made in a lifetime. This servant owed the king. And the king says, Pay up. And the servant, you may recall the story, says, Oh, look, king, he throws himself on the ground before him. I got nothing. I can't repay this debt. Even if I work the rest of my life, I can never repay this debt. And Jesus said, You know what the king does? He says, All right. Slate is clean. Can you imagine that, having like a $12,000 visa bill, and visa calls you up and says, hey, don't worry about it, we'll let it off. Just just tear up the bill. (laughs) Hallelujah. Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's what happens. And then Jesus says, but that servant, who had been forgiven so much, goes right out and finds another servant alongside him and grabs him and starts shaking him. Pay me back the five bucks you owe me. I want it back now. And the other servant says, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't have the five bucks. He says, you're going to prison. And he sends him into debtor's prison, and when the king finds out about it, he goes ballistic. And he throws that first servant into debtor's prison until he pays back what he owes, which he will never do. This is important to God the Father. This matters to Jesus. You cannot walk out of a reconciliation with God and demand that someone else pay you back. 
Because God didn't demand it of you. Reconciliation is the responsibility of the reconciler. And if I have been reconciled, what else can I do? Look at verse 12. The story goes on that Esau says, Let us take our journey and go, and I'll go before you. But he, Jacob, said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and all the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they're driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. And I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, well, please, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for him a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore the place is named Succoth. And you need to notice here that Jacob needs nothing from Esau. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to go with him. He doesn't need his men to help him travel. He's got all he needs. He's also the rightful heir. And he's been blessed beyond measure, but more to more than meets the eye. Now this is real difficult. Hard to explain, but it's important. Because I believe it's the most important element of reconciliation. It's what allows us to take on the responsibility of reconciliation. And number three, reconciliation is the right of the heir. H-E-I-R Reconciliation is the right of the heir What does that mean? For all the grace and love That we see in Esau in this chapter And there's a lot He's impressive in the way he loves his brother For all of this he is still missing something He lacks the right of the heir The right of the heir In spite of all Jacob's faults and flaws He is saved Tragically, Esau, in spite of all of his grace, is not. Jacob is a saved individual. You will see Jacob on the other side. You're going to meet Jacob in heaven. I highly doubt whether or not Esau will even be there. Why can you, how do you say that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. The writer says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Esau, folks, falls short of the grace of God. Wait a minute. How can you say that? Esau shows grace. He shows kindness. He shows love and mercy to his brother. How is that falling short? Not once. In the entire biblical record, does Esau even mention God? Does he even recognize the existence of God? Not once does Esau pray to the Father or look to God in any situation that he's mentioned in Scripture. Esau is silent on the matter of God. Jacob, however, wept and refused, you may remember, he wept and refused to let go of God. He clung to God. He sought the Father. And so you have these two really interesting pictures. Jacob, who is this conniver whose life is somewhat messy, and Esau, who looks pretty good. But who's the saved person here? Jacob is. Why? Because, folks, reconciliation has nothing to do with what we do. Remember, reconciliation is unmerited. It's grace. It's favor. We get it. It's given to us. Now, you may still say, wait a minute, that's not fair. I'll give you that. It's not fair. But let me ask you this question. Do you really want fair? Do you want God to treat us as our sins deserve? 
I don't. And if you want wiped clean of all of that sin, there's one way to do it. It's falling before the Father and asking for His forgiveness. It's seeking Him out. It's confessing your need. It is not taking the tools and going back and trying to make your life right. You can't do it. Jacob knows he can't do it and so he lifts into this relationship with Esau a broken man with a messy life saved by God. Esau is not. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But in Ephesians 2.4 he says but... Check this out. God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead, in that moment of deadness, made us alive in Christ Jesus. That's so interesting. It's so fascinating. so amazing. He says, by grace you have been saved. Not when you cleaned it up, but when you were flat on your face. In that moment, God saves you. C.S. Lewis was at a, at a conference of a bunch of theologians and as they discussed what separated Christianity from all the major world religions he walked into the room as this discussion was going on and they turned to Lewis and they said hey what, what do you think what do you think separates Christianity from all the world religions and C.S. Lewis said that's easy grace it's grace you realize there's not another religion on the face of the planet that goes by grace Islam doesn't you have to work and work hard and even after all your work for Allah you still may end up thrown into hell. Every other major religion, look at them all. It's about building up your works righteousness. It's about doing it all yourself and God says you can't fix it. You cannot fix the broken relationship between us. Therefore, I will give you something. I'll give you my grace. Reconciliation becomes my right as an heir to the Father. But Rick, if Esau came up short of God's grace, can I come up short of God's grace as well? Only if you ignore it. Only if you reject it. Only if you attempt to make it on your own. Only if you say, God, I really don't need you. I'm a pretty darn good person. I don't think I would ever want to stand. I know I wouldn't want to stand before God pretty darn good. Because in the middle of that pretty darn good is some pretty darn bad. Reconciliation is the right of the heir. When you understand that, then you can be a reconciler. When you see you haven't earned anything yourself, that God loves you unconditionally, it compels us. Christ's love compels us to be reconcilers ourselves. Let's look at the last thing here. Verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. Literally, this verse doesn't say he came safely. It says he came in peace. Jacob came in peace to the city of Shechem. And number four on your list, reconciliation results in peace. It results in peace. Peace between brothers. Peace among families. Peace in the heart of the reconciler. Jacob comes in peace to the city of Shechem. Now Shechem was a city that was on the spur of a hill. Literally a ridge or the neck of a mountain. Shechem literally means the neck or between the, the shoulders. And can you listen to this? For the first time in Jacob's life, there was no longer a pain in his neck. As he comes into Shechem, he doesn't have a pain in his neck. He's not a pain in the neck. 
He has peace. You know that, that little pain that sits back there, especially when you're frustrated with someone, and it just tightens up? You want to be free of that? You want to just have peace between yourself and another person and the Father? Reconciliation does it. Sure, Jacob's limping, leaning on God, but there's no more straining or striving, no fear or worry creating knots between his shoulders. He is just in peace as he comes into Shechem. And Ephesians 2.14 tells us Jesus is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So I ask you, what's it going to be today? What's it going to be? You can have peace or you can be a pain in the neck. You can have peace or striving and stress. Verse 19 tells us that Jacob bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Yisrael. El Elohe Yisrael, which means God is the God of Israel. And when Jacob built this altar, there was no people of Israel other than his immediate family. He was Israel. He is recognizing his name here is no longer Jacob, it's Israel. Now God's going to come to Jacob again and remind him of his new name Israel. But in this moment, Jacob says, God is the God of Israel. If you're not already a Christian, I want to encourage you today to be reconciled to the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's no other way to get to it, folks. No other way to find peace but through reconciliation. But for those who are believers in Christ, those of you who have already been reconciled by Jesus to God, the challenge is, be a reconciler for the Father. You be about the business of reconciliation. You do it. Don't wait for it to come to you. We have been given, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation. And folks, if we understand that, if we can live by that, then we will live with the grace to say, as Israel said, God is the God of me.